This morning, we're continuing through our sermon series in the book of Romans. Romans is the revelation of the righteousness of God in the gospel. And so, as we've gone through this, we've seen how God has uh, justified us, that has declared us right before Him by His mercy and His grace in the person of Christ, by giving us or imputing, putting upon us the righteousness of Christ so that we might be forgiven. So we come now into Romans chapter 6. Paul's going to expand on that idea and show us how we are made holy before God. If you want to follow along, we are in Romans 6, 1 through 14. You can find that in your worship folder. This is God's word. Paul writes, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we ask you again that your spirit would come and minister to our hearts to give us that understanding into your word. And in doing so, we might grow and be renewed in our faith. We ask that you would call those who walk in unrighteousness to the righteousness of Jesus. And for those of us that are united to him, that you would tie us all the more closer to our Lord and Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen. You know, the gospel truly is amazing and not simply because it saves us, but how effectively it saves us from our sin. 
I mentioned a few weeks ago that beginning in Romans chapter 5, Paul is starting to show how God's work of redeeming sinners is not simply a future hope, though there is future hope, but it is a present reality. The gospel affects us now. It changes us now. It impacts our lives and helps us in the present because we are living presently in God's kingdom through Christ our Lord. Now, of course, that kingdom isn't completed yet. And while God's promises are fulfilled in Jesus, there is a not yet aspect that we are waiting for God to fulfill when King Jesus returns. But we know that there is already blessing occurring in our lives and in the church and in God's people all throughout this world right now in the present. We must not lose sight of that. And one of those blessings is that as Christians, as those who have received and rest and trust in Christ alone through faith alone to be made right with God, as Christians, we are not condemned for our sin because they are already forgiven. Instead, God sees us as righteous in Jesus. Even though the law exposes our sin, the grace of God is more powerful than our sin. And so at the end of Romans 5, we read those words in Romans 5.20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass to show that we have no excuse. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That statement is so profound and so radical that we might be tempted to think then, well, sin really doesn't matter if it's in my life. I can sin because grace will abound. So if grace abounds, why not sin in excess to increase grace? Well, this is a question Paul anticipates. And he answers here in Romans chapter 6. And what he shows us is that to think that we can sin because there is grace means we really don't understand the gospel at all. And so he says in verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And his reply to that is as forceful as he can make it. He says, by no means, or another way to translate it is, may it never be, or as the King James Version translates it, God forbid. No, we shouldn't sin that grace may abound. Because while justification is an act of God's grace where He declares us righteous in Christ, Sanctification, another big word that we're going to look at here this morning, is a work of God's grace whereby we are renewed daily in all that we are and able to live life more and more in God's righteousness and die to our sin. Romans chapter 6 is all about this big theological idea of sanctification. Because Paul wants his readers to understand that there is a difference in what God does in this great redeeming work of salvation. Sanctification is not justification. And so what we learn here in these first 14 verses is that God 
has united us to Christ so that as believers, we no longer live under the power of sin, but under the reign of his grace. So what we should pursue then, his grace rather than our sin. The pursuit of God's grace is what grows us, which transforms us, which makes us little by little to be more like Jesus. That's sanctification. That's what we mean by that. And that happens, firstly, when you know who you are. You see that in verses 1 through 4. We are to know who we are. And by knowing who we are, God sanctifies us. He makes us holy. He makes us in more into the image of Christ. So verses 1 and 2 again. What shall we say? Are we to continue in, in grace, uh, in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So there's the first thing we see who we are as believers. We are dead to sin. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're dead, dead to sin. This is the opposite of what you were before you were redeemed by God's grace. So last week we looked at our identity and it is either in Adam or it is in Christ. And if you are in Adam, you are a sinner by nature and death comes by sin. So we would say that in Adam, you are dead in sin. But now, if you, by faith, are united to Christ, you are in Him, you are now dead to sin, rather than being dead in sin. And a dead body, as we know, it has no power. It cannot function. And so what it says, what Paul is saying here is you are dead to sin. It has no power or control over you. Now, does that mean that believers never sin or cannot sin? Well, no, that is not what Paul is saying here. He isn't saying that we will never sin if we are in Christ. He's not arguing for moral perfectionism. In fact, as we come into Romans chapter 7 in a couple of weeks here, we'll, Paul will show us that even those who belong to Jesus still do sin and sometimes they sin grievously. You see, a child only acts like a child because that's what they are. They're a child. We expect them to behave childishly. But as adults, we're supposed to act like adults. And yet we know that as adults, sometimes we can be pretty childish and it is not a good thing. We expect a childish adult to stop acting like a child because they are not one. That's the idea here. As a Christian, you are not in Adam. You are not a sinner by nature anymore. You've been redeemed from that. But occasionally, you still act like one. But by God's grace, little by little, as the work of the gospel penetrates our heart, God does transform us through the victory that is ours in Jesus. And so by saying that believers are dead to sin... Paul is saying, you're no longer under sin's power. It isn't your master. It doesn't control you like it did before you were redeemed. It's not who you are. You might still sin, but that's out of accord now with who God has made you in Jesus. 
So why then would a person who has been made righteous before God say, well, I'll just continue in sin so that grace will abound? A person who is united to Christ would not say that. The point is that that statement shows an evidence of the lack of God's righteousness in them through Christ. So Paul says, know who you are. If you've been saved by God, you are united to Christ and you are dead to sin. You're no longer a slave to it. Which means then that you can glorify God. You can bring honor to God and make much of Him. You can live according to His righteousness. See, sanctification hinges upon this whole idea of our union with Jesus. In fact, apart from God uniting us to Christ through faith in Him, it doesn't happen. Remember that union with Jesus means that what happened to Christ is what happens to you. So when Christ died to put an end to sin, it means that sin has been ended for you. And one way that we remember that, Paul says here, is through the sacrament of baptism. He says, know who you are. And one way of knowing who you are is by letting your baptism preach to you who you are. So verses 3 through 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, it doesn't matter when you receive your baptism, whether as an adult or as a covenant child. Because it's not about what you have done. It's about what God does for you. And he doesn't do it through the water applied to you, but by the work of his spirit to change your heart, to give you new life, to make you his own in Christ Jesus. Baptism is a sign and a seal that points to what God has done, not to what we have done. It points to God's saving work through Jesus Christ, through both his death, as Paul says here, and his resurrection. And what did Jesus' death and resurrection do? Well, it destroyed the power of sin. And so baptism, your baptism, proclaims that when you are united to Christ through faith, that victory that Jesus won over sin is your victory. And baptism proclaims Jesus' resurrection as well. For Jesus was buried but raised upon the third day for the glory of the Father. So Paul says that united to Christ then, you walk in this newness of life. That is to say, a resurrected life. Remembering who you are through baptism means that you're remembering that you already belong to this resurrected life, the life of God's kingdom. It is already yours. You are already dead to sin and alive to God. And that is a very real and practical way that baptism is applied to the life of the believer on a daily basis. You see, we, we oftentimes we see it um, performed And church, and we celebrate that God does wash us from our sins 
as it reminds us and points to these truths. And then we kind of forgive about it. But our larger catechism tells us that as believers, um, God's intention behind baptism, and I think that's what Paul is getting at here, is that we are to improve upon our baptism. It becomes a means of God uses to sanctify us, to make us more like Christ by reminding us that we belong to God. That is who you are. You belong to God because you've been united to Christ. And so you are dead to sin and you have a new life, a life that can glorify God. So it means we we can do what God asks us to do for Him. It means that we can grow and be strengthened in our faith. It means that we can foster a greater love for God and for our neighbors. Not by our own efforts, but by remembering who we are and what God has done for us. So know who you are. And by virtue of your union with Christ, you will be made by God's Spirit holy before God. Secondly, Paul says here in verses 5 and 11, he says, not only do you need to know who you are, but live as you are. Live the way God has made you. So verse 5, for if we have been united with Him, Jesus, in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. So again, he's emphasizing this fact that in Christ we've been united to Him. His death put to death the power of sin. So it is, we are no longer uh, in sin. We are dead to it. But he says we're also united to Jesus in His resurrection. And we tend to think of resurrection, again, as a, as a future occurrence. We think of the end when Christ returns and all the dead will be raised. And that is true. There is a future resurrection. But I don't believe that's the resurrection Paul has in mind. What he wants us to see here is that we are already risen. We have already been granted this newness of life to walk before God for His glory. That future resurrection, or in that future resurrection, the wicked will also be resurrected to judgment and then the righteous to life. But what Paul is getting is that is that right now, that resurrection has an effect upon you. You have a new life. Resurrection equals new life. And so the concept of new life then is wrapped up in all the promises of the gospel. And you see this theme of newness and renewal being mentioned throughout the scriptures as God will renew his people, as he will breathe new life into them, as he will raise up those who are dead to new life, those who are spiritually dead to a new life in Christ. We read of things like a new heavens and a new earth, and God tells us that he will do a new work in the midst of his people, and we hear of a new covenant, which is a new expression of the old covenant of His grace. And all that newness, all that renewal is summarized in this word called eschaton. That simply speaks of God breaking into the world. We often think of it as the end or last things, and it does speak of that. That's why 
Theologians refer to the doctrine of eschatology, the doctrine of, of end times. But the eschaton is not simply a future event. The eschaton has already broken into the present. How do we know that? Because Jesus has already defeated sin and death. He has already risen. Christ's kingdom is here in this present evil age. And it is growing. And one day it will complete. And the eschaton will be Ended because all will be as God promised. So that means that as a believer, you are already part of that. It exists right now. You have that resurrected life. You are living that in Christ. God's work of renewal has already begun in you. It's not something that will happen in the future. And why is that? Because our old self has already been put to death. That's what Paul says in verse 6. We know, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So Jesus, or what Paul is saying here is that in Jesus... You have a new way of living, a way that does result in sanctification, of being made more like Him, of being made holy by God. Paul puts it another way here. He says that in Jesus, you are free to live life without the fear of death. Verses 9 and 10, we know that Christ... Being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And so the scriptures do show us that death is the penalty for sin. But in dying and rising from the grave, Jesus shows us that death has no dominion over him. And being united to Him means that it has no dominion over us. If you are in Jesus, you do not have to fear death as a penalty for sin. Because it's not held against you any longer. You are free to live without fear of death. You are free to follow God's laws. You are free to do what He commands you without fear That when you do sin, it means condemnation because you've already been forgiven. And so Paul says in verse 11, because of that, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And he's using an accounting term here when he says to consider yourself dead to sin. It has to do with reckoning what is in your account before God. He's saying, consider yourselves. Understand that positionally, there is no penalty for your sin held against you. It's already been canceled out. Everything's been paid in full by the work of Christ. Now, experientially, you may still sin, but positionally, God already considers you to be dead to that sin and alive in Christ. Now, before you were united to Jesus, there was certainly a reason to fear death. For it is the 
penalty for our sins. And there is a reason to fear God's law because you looked at it and it seems so insurmountable. How could anyone keep this? And failure meant eternal death, eternal condemnation. But in Christ, there's no fear of that condemnation. And so we are free through Christ to strive for the glory of God by obeying Him. And that means we can and ought to live as we are. We ought to live as God has made us. You see, sanctification isn't about works righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ at work in you. Grace not only makes you righteous before God, but it drives you to righteousness for God. Now, normally, the way people think about serving God and obeying His law and becoming holy is that we have to follow His law in order for God to accept us. But the gospel reverses that. In the gospel of grace, God looks at the ungodly sinner who is outside of Christ. And he says, on the basis of what Jesus has done for you, you are mine. You belong to me. And now because you belong to me, you can become holy. How do you do that, though? I mean, it's one thing to know who you are, to understand these truths, that we are dead to sin in Christ, that we are alive unto God through Christ's resurrection. It's another thing to say, yes, I need to live as I am according to that identity. But how do I actually do that? How do I actually overcome sin in my life and temptation as a follower of God, as a child of the King? How do I kill sin? Well, you do it. By pursuing that grace of God rather than your own sin. And where do you pursue God's grace? You pursue it through your worship of Him in Christ Jesus. See, knowing who you are is knowing that you are united to Jesus. Living as you are is living the life that is yours in Jesus that He has given you. And you live out that life as you worship Him as your God and King. We see this in verses 12 through 14. So Paul summarizes what he's been saying here in verse 12. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And the key word there is reign. It speaks of authority and power. When sin reigns over you, you obey its desires. But Christ has already broken that power. It doesn't reign over you. So when he says, let not sin reign over you, he's saying, in effect, let Christ, your King, reign over you instead. It's a matter of authority. It's a matter of who is your God? Who are you worshiping? It's a matter of faith. Do you pursue God's grace, which forgives all sin, or you Pursue the passion of your own sin instead of Jesus. It really is a matter of worship. That's the new life. A life of worship. A sanctified life is one that gives worship to God rather than self. And so we get a description of that worship-filled life in verse 13. 
Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So the word members here speaks of all the parts of you, all that you are. It is your body, your mind, and your heart. And uh, to charge here, or or the idea of uh, presenting, is to give as a sacrifice or in service to. And so he's saying here, don't offer any part of who you are, any part of your being to sin, to serve it, to use it as an instrument for your own unrighteousness. But use yourself, your life, give it all in worship to God. Serve God and not yourself. Make much of who He is instead of yourself. Make much of His people, His church, His truth, His word, instead of all of your own selfish desires. Worship God rather than worship yourself. Because the goal of God's sanctifying work in His people is that He would be worshipped. That's why He sets us apart as holy in Christ. So that we would be these instruments that glorify Him. Believers are set apart by God for the purpose of worshiping Him for all eternity. And look what happens when we do worship God instead of ourselves. Verse 14, For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. So again, you get this idea of dominion, of power, and sin does not rule over you if you are united to Jesus. Because a believer is now under grace. The grace of the gospel rather than the condemnation of the law. That's the new life. That's the sanctified life. One that follows after the grace of the gospel which shatters sin's power. And little by little, that sin in your life will fail because it has no power over you anymore. You belong to Christ. You see, sin cannot condemn you. And sin cannot kill you as it once could. Instead, we kill sin by simply worshiping Christ. And when we worship God, we confess our sin to Him. We continue to look to Him to faith. We are renewed in this newness of life. We are reminded who we are and we are enabled to live as we are without fear of condemnation. So what about those sin struggles you have in life? Those sins that you are still battling with? How do you work through them? You work through them by doing the things that God has called you to do. The simple things. Worship Him. Part of worship is confession, but it is also resting in his words of forgiveness that are yours in Christ. Worship him. Because it is in worship that you remember who you are so that you can live as you are. 
You see, worshiping God is entering into this new heavens and new earth. And so we seek Christ through worship, through his word, through the sacraments, through prayer. Much ink has been spilled about how believers are to overcome sin and this whole idea of sanctification. And many of those words that have been written and said are not helpful. I think the intention behind them was sincere and good because we all want to be better. But what they do is they remove Christ from the picture. And when you do that, this whole idea of sanctification really loses its power. It's not even there. Sanctification just becomes a process that you follow to turn over a new leaf or break a bad habit. But that's not sanctification because it isn't bad habits that need to be broken. It's the power of sin that needs to be destroyed if we are to be what God wants us to be. And it is only through Christ that that sin is broken. So united to Him, through faith alone, we truly are dead to sin. Grace truly does abound more than sin. And one day, this corpse of sin that is already dead and canceled out that we carry along in our bodies will finally be purged away. And we know that because little by little, as we remember who we are and seek to live as we are through worshiping Christ, sin is canceled, it is killed, it is put to death in our lives. And no doubt that if you are like me as a believer, you are bothered by the sin in your own life that remains there. That's good. That is good. Because it's a sign that God's grace, His sanctifying grace, is at work in you. Because you know that's not who I am and that is not what I should be doing. And so run to Christ and worship Him and rest in His sanctifying grace. It's interesting that the idea of Sabbath is associated with rest and we are called as God's people to worship one day out of the week on the Lord's day as a Sabbath, as a day of rest. Why? Because it is a rest, a cessation from this world of sin. When we gather together, we are practicing this new life that is ours. We are partaking of the new heavens and new earth. We're getting a little taste of that right now. It is a break from all the sin around us and in our own lives. It is a place of rest. And one day, that rest will never end because the king will return. And sin that is already broken in power will be pushed aside and its presence will be felt no more. It will be gone. But until that day, know who you are. Live as you are and worship the God who has made you his own. Let us pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your word and we praise you for it. We thank you that we are not saved by our efforts, 
but we are saved completely by the grace of God. And it is through our faith that we are justified and it is by your grace that we are sanctified as you are at work in us. For you have united us to Jesus, our Savior. Help us to know these things so that we might glorify you the rest of our days until Christ returns. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.